0: in our series uh, the kingdom is like and our parable the one that jesus serves up for us today is one that is about weddings Um, now i uh have a lot of experience with weddings. Um, as a pastor, it's one of these really cool things that we get to do. I've officiated probably uh, several dozen weddings. Um, we get the best seat in the house as we get to lead a man and a woman uh, to make a covenant with one another before God. Um, it is it is one of the craziest and most awesome things that we get to do as a pastor, to be involved and to be to be a part of that. So I've been involved in a lot of weddings. I've officiated a lot of weddings, but I've only been a groom one time, one time. Um, this summer, my bride, Holly, and I will celebrate 13 years of marriage, our 13th wedding anniversary. Um, and, well, okay. Thanks. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that is us, uh, that is us 12 and a half years ago or so. Um, let's just take that in for a second. Can we just take that in? That's before there was. they gave you the CD or sent you the, the Dropbox link with all of your f- picture files in it. That's actually with a 35-millimeter camera. Then is a picture taken of a picture, so that 's why the quality is so great, uh, but this summer we will celebrate uh, thirteen years of of marriage and um, We uh, dated in college, we were engaged uh, during our senior year, and about six months later, two weeks after we graduated, uh, we were married. We were babies, we were just such young little babies uh, when we got married, but um, going into our wedding, there was so much time, like most weddings, so much time and preparation that goes into preparing for the wedding day, right? You, um, you order invitations, you talk to your, to your friends, close friends about being bridesmaids and groomsmen. You, um, you go and you taste a uh, wedding cake and you order a wedding cake, a wedding cake that for us was so, so good. You, um, you talk to officiants, pastors to officiate the wedding. You uh, select music. You, um, you do all these sorts of things that are preparing for this one day. Buy dresses, rent tuxes, friends and family. They they make plans, arrangements to all be there for this one specific day. And that day came for us, and Holly was standing um, outside the back doors of the church that we were married in, and here comes the bride starts playing, and she walks in uh, the room as my fiance, and we walk out of those doors together, um, and she is my wife. And we were ready, we were ready for that day. We were prepared. We'd done the checklists. We'd, we'd we'd exhausted everything that we knew to do in order for when that day came, that we would be prepared, that we'd be ready. Now, um, this is the case uh, for for thousands of weddings that take place across uh, the United States every year, and and we put so much time and energy and effort into the wedding day itself. Did you did you know that the wedding industry in in twenty fifteen was actually a $60 billion industry. Just the wedding industry alone, preparing for that one single day. $60 billion in 2015 went toward that one single day. But but I often wonder, as we prepare, as people prepare for that day that is beautiful and significant, it's the day that a commitment, a covenant is made. We spend so much time focusing on it, but do we actually take time in preparing for Marriage. We take all this energy and effort and we put it into this event, this day, but that commitment, that, that day, that event, that covenant is not, is not just that one event. It is lived out, it is, it is tested, and it is proved of its worth over the days and the weeks and the months and the years that will follow. I think often maybe we look at salvation the same way. We look at at a relationship with Jesus or salvation from um, the effects of our sins, uh, salvation from hell. And we look at it the same way. We look at it as this event, this decision, this thing that we point to. An aisle was walked maybe, a prayer was prayed, a commitment was made. It's a day that we can point back to that we can say that is the day that salvation happened to me. But the worth, the value of that decision, what happened on that day, it's played out over the days and the months and the years that will follow. Our lives are not a span of time that we get to work and try and earn the reward of salvation for ourselves. Our lives are a place where this, the reward of salvation has been given to us through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And we can to spend those days and months and weeks and years living out of dependence on the person of Jesus Christ. So this morning, our, our parable, it talks about a wedding. And, and Jesus does what Jesus does in such great lengths. He, he teaches us uh, things that are of a deeper kingdom reality, but he uses a vehicle of something that we understand, that we connect with in order to do it. So let's read the full uh, piece of text this morning. We're going to be in, in Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to read verses 1 through 13 together this morning. It says, "'The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise.' For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins, they rose and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves." Who here has um, ever seen a wedding? Can you raise your hand? Either you were a part of one, you saw one on TV or in a movie. Keep your hands up. Keep them up, 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 up. All right, look around. Okay, so the majority of us have some exposure to a wedding. This, this scene that Jesus is setting for us, we can all connect with it in some form or fashion. So not everybody in this room is married. Not all of us have experienced a wedding or been a bridesmaid or a groomsman. Um, when Jesus was talking to the disciples, um, some of them were married. Not all of them were married. Jesus himself was not married. But when he used this vehicle, this, this story to, to communicate what the kingdom of heaven is like, they were all able to connect with it in some way. And so this morning, um, don't get lost in the imagery of how have I ever been a part of a wedding, but have you ever seen one? Have you ever been exposed to one? And then use this idea of preparedness for a wedding to really teach us a deeper meaning. What Jesus was trying to do in, uh, with this parable. So the text itself, what we're reading this morning in Matthew chapter 25, um, it's part of a bigger, uh, a a bigger chunk where Jesus is teaching that's often called the Olivet Discourse. And, um, what happens in here is Jesus, uh, has had his triumphal entry. He's entered into Jerusalem, just like Logan was talking about earlier in the worship set. Uh, Matthew talks about this in chapter 21. Uh, he rides in. The people, uh, start shouting, Hosanna, which means, uh, save us or our salvation is here. Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. People started um, taking their coats off and they were laying them on the ground. They were cutting palm branches and they were laying them on the dirt. So as the king, as Jesus is riding into town, not even the hooves of the donkey that was carrying him would actually um, touch the dirt. He would enter in spotless. So he's riding in, he's riding into this place and there are people, they're shouting this because they've been waiting for the one who would come to save them. Israel's been waiting and waiting for the Messiah, the promised one, the one who would come and save God's people. And finally, he had arrived and he was entering into the city. He's entering into the city, the the place where the people would later try him and crucify him. But that day, he enters in as a victorious king. So Jesus comes, he's here, and everybody has given him a king's reception, The Messiah had come. Now, Jesus is with his disciples whenever we pick up in the Olivet Discourse in chapter 24. And he's talking to them, and and they have been with him. Remember, the majority of Jesus' ministry, they've been walking with him, they've been learning from him. And uh, Jesus has told them that he will die, and that he will be raised um, from the dead. And that after he is raised from the dead, that he will then come again. This is what John talks about in his gospel in chapter 14 that he will go and he will prepare a place for those who have followed him, and then he will come back to uh to, to return to receive them again. So in the Olivet discourse, they've they've heard this, um they've heard Jesus say this, they go to the temple and they're correct Jesus is correcting some religious leaders. They're turning around, they're walking out of the temple, and Jesus looks at, at the disciples and he says, See this temple, not even a stone will be stacked on top of another whenever the end will come. Okay. So he's pointing back to the fact that there will be an end of time and after the end of time, after Jesus has died, has ascended, he will come again. He's pointing to this. And the disciples, they have all of these, they have these questions, similar questions that I think we actually have today when it comes to Jesus' return. The fact that Jesus came, he lived in our place, he died in our place, he ascended and is with the Father and will one day, he will come again. So they ask these questions. They say, how will we know when the end comes? How will we know when the time is here? How will we know that, Jesus, you are going to return? And uh, Jesus looks at them, and starting in chapter 24, he just starts walking through some different things, and he says, people are going to come, and they're going to tell you that they are the Christ, that they have come back, that this promise that I've told you will come true, and that they'll come back and try and claim it. He will say that, he says that wars will happen, famines will happen, disaster will happen. And all these things, they're not the sign of the end is what Jesus says. We should expect these things. He says, he compares them to birth pains. They're just signs that he is coming. That the Messiah will return again. And he gives us this one key in chapter 24. He says that the gospel will be proclaimed to all nations of the earth and then the end will come. We have to remember this. The gospel will be proclaimed to all the nations of the earth, and then the end will come. So then he starts walking through what the nature of his return will be like. And he tells the disciples that they will know when he will come back. So when we start asking these questions, when is he going to come back? What will it be like? He tells us in the scriptures, no one knows when Jesus will return. And when he comes, it will be unmistakable. No one's going to have to point us to Jesus. We're not going to have to go looking for him. Jesus actually even says it's like lightning in the sky. It's sudden, but you can't you, you can not see it. Jesus' return will be like that. That's what the nature of it will be. It will be sudden, and it will be unmistakable. And then he goes on to tell them this parable, this story about a wedding, to help them really understand what the nature of his return will be like. So Jesus says that the kingdom will be like ten virgins. And really what we're talking about here are, are bridesmaids, people that are part of, the wedding, part of the wedding party. They go to meet the groom. Half of them are prepared. They um, thought that it could take a while, and so they take some extra oil with them. Whenever their lamp starts to burn down, um, they can pour more oil into it, and the lamp will continue in its usefulness. Um, we have to remember they were dependent on light in that way in Jesus' time. And then half the bridesmaids, half of the wedding party, they weren't prepared. They, um, they went, um, to wait for the groom and didn't take extra oil with them. So the lamp goes out, the lamp uses its useful, loses its usefulness, and they are not ready to be a part of the wedding festivities. So as the story plays out, all of the bridesmaids, they fall asleep. The wise ones and the foolish ones. But then somebody comes and says, the bride, the, the groom, the bridegroom, he is on his way. Everybody get up, everybody get ready. So all of them, all ten of them, they get up. And the the foolish ones, it's almost like they remember at that moment. They had an opportunity to be prepared, but they weren't. So they get up, they remember, I don't have enough oil. We've waited a long time. The groom was delayed. He took longer than we thought he was going to. So they go to the wise bridesmaids, the wise, uh, the wise ones who brought the extra oil with them, and he, they, they ask, can we have some oil for our lamps too? Our lamps are going to burn out. They're going to lose their usefulness. And the wise bridesmaids say, we don't have enough for you and enough for us. So go to the dealers, buy some for yourself. So the, the bridesmaids, they go. They go to the dealers. They go to buy more oil for their lamps. And while they are gone, the groom comes. So the prepared ones, the ones that were ready for the groom to arrive, they're invited into the wedding feast, and 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 then the unprepared ones they show back up, and they are um, shut out. The doors are closed, and they cannot enter. So there are um, some really clear connections um, within this parable for us. Um, not all aspects of it need to be stretched out. Not all of it need to. Not all of them need to be read into. So this morning, what we want to do is just focus on the aspects of the parable that we know for certain, that we can clearly uh, connect with. Um. In, in Jesus' day, it's likely that this idea of, of the groom coming to pick up the bridesmaids, um, the wedding was likely part of kind of a larger festivity, a larger feast. And so the groom would come and he would pick up part of the wedding party and he would invite them into the feast and then the wedding feast would, would continue. Um, when we look at this passage, we see, uh, we see three groups. We three, see three sets. We see the foolish bridesmaids the ones who were unprepared. We see the wise bridesmaids, the wise portion of the wedding party, the ones who were prepared. And then we, we see the groom. When we look to kind of see the parallels or what actually is being taught in this passage when Jesus is saying it, we see that Jesus is the groom and this makes really fitting sense. This is often um, the context or situation that is given for the Messiah, for Jesus, that he would be the groom, the one who would come to receive, to rescue his bride, the church. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter five when he talks about about marriage. He, He talks about husbands loving their wives the same way that Christ loves the church. So husbands, the groom, loving their wives, the bride. The same way that Christ, the groom, loves his bride, the church. So this is a common context for him. And this is actually the the setting that that we read of in Matthew uh, 25. It's actually similar to what John talks about in Revelation chapter 19. He talks about the end of time coming and the wedding feast arriving and that we, the church, those who have placed our faith in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, that we'll be invited to the banquet table, we will sit down at this great wedding feast where we will be with the one who has come to save us, with Jesus, the true groom. So we see that Jesus is the groom, but we also see that we are the bridesmaids. Now, I um, have never been a bridesmaid, I must confess. Um, I, have, uh, I have been a part of weddings outside of officiating them. I've been, um, I've been a best man, I've been a groomsman, all that kind of stuff. But you see there is this kind of like all-in involvement that happens with a wedding. So when we read this parable and we try and connect ourselves with the bridesmaids, you may not be able to actually put yourself in their um, shoes, their wedding shoes, their high heels, whatever bridesmaids, um, they didn't wear those back then. They didn't have high heel sandals, I'm guessing. But um, whatever they were wearing at that time, you're not trying to actually put yourself in their situation, but you're trying to connect with the responsibility that they have to be prepared for the wedding, wedding itself. So... If we translate this, if those parallels, uh, accordingly, we would say that Jesus is the groom, and we are the bridesmaids, and we will either be prepared or we will be unprepared for his return. We are part of the wedding party. Now, um, the opportunity that's in front of us is to really ask the question, are we like the wise bridesmaids or are we like the foolish bridesmaids? Um, are we like the wise portion of the wedding party? Or are we like the foolish portion of the wedding party? Um, some of us are advance preparers, right? So we automatically look at those wise bridesmaids, the wise portion of the wedding party, and we're like, "Yeah, if we—I knew I was going to have to wait a long time, I surely would take a little thing of oil and I would put it in my pocket and I would be ready if I needed it. I'd be good boy scout, good girl scout, prepared all the time, ready to go if any situation would come up." And then there are other por- other parts of us that we look at this and we're like, just kind of like living by the next moment. We're flying by the seat of our pants. So if we're going to wait on somebody, we'll just kind of see how it plays out. We'll see what happens. And if I don't have what I need, surely somebody else will have what I need. So I'll just be able to turn to them and get the, the oil that I need to keep my lamp going or any other kind of like rations that I would need. I'll just turn to them and, and I'll be able to get what I need from, from them. But I would say honestly, I would say honestly, when it comes to the reality that Jesus is teaching us in this parable, we often are more like, just at our core, right? We're more like the foolish bridesmaids. We have a hard time not looking at what is directly in front of us, the next thing, and not just living for it. We have a really hard time for that. Because what Jesus is talking about is something, when he's telling the disciples and even what we're reading about it today, we have such a difficult time connecting with the idea that Jesus will come again. Because let's be honest, people have been waiting for centuries for the return of Jesus. For centuries. Been waiting and waiting and waiting. We have to remember that before Jesus comes again, that Jesus has come a first time, and that there was a people that waited for centuries for the Messiah to come. And as God is, he was good to his promise. The Messiah came. And just as God was good to his word that time, he will be good to his word again. And Jesus will return. But until he does, Jesus gave handles to what this would be like. There's a deeper reality going on than what is directly in front of us. So just like those foolish bridesmaids, they knew that they needed to take a lamp with them and they were just going to kind of see how things panned out, but they knew what was directly in front of them. They weren't thinking long-term. They weren't thinking past that next moment. We often do the same thing. And do not live in the reality that is anchored in the return of Jesus Christ. We don't live in a reality that is anchored in the return of Jesus Our lives are preparation for seeing Jesus one way or the other. Our lives are preparation for seeing Jesus one way or the other. We will either be like the wise bridesmaids who are ready for the king to return, ready for the groom to arrive, or we'll be like the foolish bridesmaids. We won't be ready at all. He'll show up and there won't be a place for us at the table. We will either be ready for whenever Jesus returns or we will not. So what does this mean, okay? The deeper reality that's happening here is the truth of the gospel for us. And let's be very clear on what this is this morning, that Jesus came and he stood in our place. He, he lived flawlessly. It's hard to wrap our minds around, lived flawlessly, never messing up, never offending God, never offending, um, never sinning against God. He stood in our place and did that for us because we can't do that on our own. And then Jesus, the perfect one, he took all those wrong things that we do, that we woke up and did five minutes after we woke up this morning, the things we did yesterday. He took all those things, those offenses toward God, because he's perfect and he's holy. He took all those offenses on himself, and then he paid the punishment for our offenses toward God. He died on the cross for us, and then he rose from the grave, and he hands us his victory. He ascended into heaven and he will come again and one day make all of the wrong things on this planet. He will make them right. And the rule that he has among his people will be a rule that all people will know. The kingdom of God will be in front of us. So when we ask, are we prepared for that return? Are we ready for the king to come back? I think that we have four questions that we can ask. The first question is one of sanctification, It's one or, or one of justification. It's one of standing. How do we stand before God? This, this question, do I trust in Jesus for salvation? What is my standing before God? Is my standing before God rooted in my offenses toward God? Or is my standing before God rooted, it's anchored in the atoning work, the covering work of Jesus for me? Have I placed my trust and my faith in Christ? Have I, have I turned to God and confessed my dependence on myself? That I want to be the king and ask forgiveness for all those offenses that I've had toward him. Have I named my dependence on him? Now friends, this question is the one that is of utmost importance as we ask these this morning. This is the question that if, if, if you're, if you've left this question unanswered or your response is no, that I've not trusted in Jesus this morning, then my, my, my question of you, my, my request of you is that today would be the day that you do that that anything that you are orienting your life around or you are treasuring or you are hoping will save you, it all will end in disappointment, every single one of them, even if you can't see it, even if it's not directly in front of you and you're living okay, one day the lamp will run out and there will be no oil left and you will be unprepared for the return of the king. And I don't say this out of fear. I don't say this to scare you into trusting Jesus. I'm telling you this because it is reality. We have the opportunity to trust in Jesus. We have an opportunity to experience the deep love of God for us in the person of his son. Do you trust in Jesus for salvation? Because if we are trusting in anything else, it will fail us every single time. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, let this be fresh news for our ears this morning. We are a people that are born into the world separated from God and on a straight pathway to hell which is separation from him. But in God's love for us he sends his son Jesus for us to save us, to rescue us that we would be his bride and he would be our groom. And one day we will be with him for all of eternity, time past time. If you have not trusted Jesus Like Paul has said in 2 Corinthians, today is the day. The opportunity is in front of you. Let no shame, let no expectation, let no other people's perceptions of you or what will people think of me. Let nothing stop you from trusting in Jesus for salvation today. Question number one, justification. What is your standing? Are you standing on your own or are you standing in Jesus, this is the first question of readiness or preparation for jesus return. The next three questions, they are questions of sanctification. Am I growing in my relationship with Christ? Am I growing in my faith in Jesus? And this, uh, this first question that we 're going to look at. They kind of move in a little sequential order for us this morning. We have to remember that all three of these questions, they're all rooted in the fact that we have trusted Christ. Okay, so this is, this is base number one, question A. Now question one, we have trusted Jesus and we're growing in relationship with him. This question is, are my priorities evidence of my relationship with Jesus? Are my priorities, my abilities, my calendar, my resources... Are they evidence of my relationship with Jesus? Okay, now remember that these things don't earn us God's approval. They don't earn us Jesus's love. But these are kind of litmus questions that we can ask in terms of our preparedness, our readiness for Jesus to return, for him to come back. I think that this one really really hits home for us. Okay? You start talking about uh, what I do with my money or how I spend my time or um, maybe even the things that I can do and what I do with them. Those things touch really, really close to home. I, I feel like they do, especially in our community today. We live in a place where people have good resources in front of them. Even if it's comparatively to world standards, people have a lot of stuff We live in a high-capacity community with a lot of people who are high achievers, even if it's just in world comparison. We have a lot of abilities. There are a lot of things that a lot of us can do. And so to step back and ask the question, are my priorities with all of those things, do they reflect my relationship with Jesus? It's going to tell me if my heart is turned toward preparedness, if I'm actually looking down the road to the return of the groom, to the return of the king. Um, Jonathan Edwards, who was an 18th century theologian and pastor, uh, one commentator that I was reading pointed uh, to uh, some of his resolutions that he wrote in one of his, one of his works, one of his books. I'm just going to read five of, us for, five of them for us this morning. I think they really help us process this idea well. He says, I'm resolved to never do anything which I should not be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. If this is it and the clock is running out, would I be ashamed of what I'm doing? Resolved to inquire every night as I'm going to bed wherein I have been negligent in what sin I have committed. And then ask, where have I denied myself? That's a hallmark of following Jesus. He says, I'm resolved to ask wherein I could possibly, in any respect, have done better in following Christ. Resolved, I will act. So as I think I will be judged, should it have been my best, most prudent when it comes to the future world? He's living as if heaven is here on earth. And then the last one, he says, I'm resolved to endeavor to my utmost, to act as though I think I should, if I'd already seen the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell. These questions are questions of priority. What are we doing with what we have in front of us? With our seconds, with our minutes, with our days, with our months, with our years, are they evidence of my relationship with Jesus? The second question, this is going to seem like it's working a little backwards, but follow with me on this. I think we often start there. What am I doing with what I have? The second question is, am I eager for Jesus to return? So whereas our first question, it addresses the things we have, the second question addresses who we are. Okay, so I'm starting with where our hearts start, and then I'm moving to what really needs to hit us. Am I eager for Jesus' return? And this question, it addresses thoughts, affections, behaviors, who I really am. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that where the treasure is, the things that we use our resources for, our, our, the way we spend our time, the way we use our abilities, that where our treasure is, there our heart is. There we're going to find where our affections are oriented, Am I eager for Jesus to return? As I was processing through this um, through this passage, I was reminded of uh, reminded of high school. I uh, became a Christian when I was uh, sixteen. I grew up uh, with the gospel around me all the time. Uh, went to a, a private Christian high school um, and and middle school, so I heard it a lot. But it wasn't until I was in uh, it was a sophomore in high school that the truth of Jesus really became clear to me. It's like Paul talks about when the veil is removed and you see the goodness of Jesus for the first time, the glory of God for the first time. Um, and I remember after I trusted in Christ, it was this kind of like just really ramped-up growth spiritually, really trusting in Jesus, um, really wanting to know what it means to follow him. But there was this one piece, this idea of Jesus coming back that was really hard for me to latch onto. I liked the idea that the king would return, that Jesus would come back, but there was a lot of things in life that I wanted to experience before he did. I had a list of priorities, and after I got some of these things done, that's when I wanted Jesus to return. I wasn't eager for him. My thoughts, my affections, my behavior were not oriented to the fact that that Jesus would come back. Um, The more that I have experienced life, the more I'm ready for Jesus to come. I'm ready for him to come. Because all these things that are in front of me, they're all just fleeting. They're all just passing. Any any experience that I would want, any accolade that I would aim toward, any material possession that I would desire, any relationship that I would want to see mature, they all have an end. But I tell you what, when we see Jesus face to face, there will be no end. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Am I eager for his return? Do my thoughts think about the fact, the reality that Jesus will come again? Are my affections stirred by the truth that God loves me and that Jesus will one day come again for me, come for us, his church? Do my behaviors reflect that I'm anticipating the return of Jesus? This is a mark of preparedness. The last thing, uh, the last question, question number three is, do I tell people about Jesus? Do I tell people about Jesus? So do my priorities reflect my relationship with him? Does the way, uh, the way that I, I, I think and, and, and the things that stir my affections, do they show my eagerness for his return? And then the last one is, do I tell people about him? If Jesus says that the, the key moment of his return will be centered around when all nations of the earth have been exposed to the good news of Jesus Christ, Am I a part of that? Am I working toward his return by telling other people about Jesus? People that are in my direct sphere of influence, like you're gonna go home to and you're gonna see tomorrow at work, and people that are all the way around the world. The Joshua Project, it, it reports that there are over 7 billion people 7.2 7.2 billion people in the world, 3 billion of which have not heard the good news of Jesus before. 6,600 people groups that have never heard the good news of Jesus before. Am I praying toward that end? Am I praying that people would hear so that Jesus will return? Am I giving toward that end? Am I, am I myself going and being willing to be the mouthpiece to share the good news of Jesus to the person who has never heard it before? Am I telling about the good, good news of Jesus? We as a church family, we are committed that the people of the world would know the good news of Jesus. But the question for us this morning is not what are we doing collectively as a church, but what am I individually burdened for and working toward myself? Do I want people to know of Jesus so that the King will return? So these questions for reflection, this idea of preparedness, have you trusted Jesus? Have we trusted Jesus? Am I anchored in him? Do my priorities show that? It's the way I live my life, the things I think about, do they show that? And am I working toward the return of Christ? So when we answer these questions, it's likely that we don't actually like how we respond to them. And it is possible that us not liking how we respond to them, this could be the Holy Spirit doing something in us changing and shaping part of us to be more like the person of Jesus, that he would change the way we, we prioritize, the way we spend ourselves, the way that we um, put our, our treasure, our affections, our, our thoughts, our behavior. He may be shifting us to actually be about the work of, of spreading the good news of Jesus to those who are around us and those who are around the world. He may be doing that work in us, but we must remember this morning that when we come to this passage, we don't leave in condemnation. We don't leave here defeated. We don't look at this thing as a list of checklists of of am I prepared or am I not prepared? We must remember that the offer is on the table. The invitation has been extended to us. That God loves us, Jesus has come for us and we have the opportunity to respond. We have the opportunity to respond to the goodness of God in the person of Jesus. So we must ask this question, are we prepared and are we evaluating our preparedness? Are we looking at our lives? Are we gearing everything we are, everything we do, the way that we interact in our marriages, the way that we act in our friendships, the way that we are as as workers and coworkers, the way that we gear our parenting, are they all aimed toward the fact of true, deep reality that Jesus is coming back. And we wanna be a people that are ready and waiting and eager for his return because it is the best thing for all of humanity that the king would come and that we would trust in him and be ready for him. It is the best thing. So all of our lives shaped and geared and pointed in that one direction, this deep reality that the wedding feast will come, the banquet table will be open, and his banner over us will be, at le- will be love. And we want every person that we know seated around that table, ready for the groom to return. Ready for the groom to return. We don't look at this passage and see condemnation we look at this passage and we see opportunity to trust in the goodness of Jesus and to shape our lives and affections and our hearts' desires toward the thing that he values most. And that is that his name would be lifted above every single other name on this planet. That is what this opportunity is for us. So if you've trusted in Jesus today, we ask him that we would orient us towards the things that he is oriented toward. We ask him that he would turn our hearts and our affections and our desires and our priorities toward the goodness that he has given us in his son, Jesus. We have to remember, there is one who came and lived in our place, an unbroken relationship with the father. There is one who came and died in our place, taking the punishment that we owed God. There is one Who rose from the grave, and in doing so, he handed us his perfect record. He handed us his righteousness. And there is one who will come again, and we want to be prepared for his return. And that one, his name, his name is Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, this morning um, this morning, I thank you for the truth that you give us in your word. God, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would do what he does, that he would feed us good truth, that there are those of us that are in this room this morning that have been uh, exposed to the gospel, who have heard it, who have sat in these pews, maybe even are members of this church, but have never truly placed everything on the line for the name of Jesus, have never fully trusted in him for the forgiveness that you give and the salvation that you offer. Father, this morning, I pray that anyone in this room would respond to the goodness uh, that you have given us in Jesus, that they would say, yes, God, I believe in Jesus. Forgive me of my offenses towards you, God. Thank you for redeeming me. God, and those of us in this room this morning that that maybe as we think about this idea of preparation for the return of Jesus, there's been kind of a check in our gut, a check in who we are. We may be recalibrating this morning. You may be doing some internal shifting in us to help us remember what really matters in this life. It's easy to get caught up in the things that are around us. It's easy to just look at what that next step is in front of us. And God, this morning, I pray that you would do what only you can do in us. You would remind us of the true value and worth, the only value and worth that there is in following Jesus. We thank you for the grace that you give us in that. We thank you for your power of your Holy Spirit in us who does that work. Father, this morning, I pray that we would be a people who are working toward the return of your son, Jesus. That we'd be ready, we'd be prepared, we'd be waiting. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray in your name, amen.